0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Cheryl Hurst. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow with the Center for Employment Relations, Innovation and Change.
1: And hi, I'm Professor Simone Buitendijk and I'm Vice-Chancellor at the University of Leeds.
0: I'm going to start the podcast with a few questions about um, Professor Buitendijk as a leader at Leeds before we get into some bigger topics. So to start, since beginning as the Leeds Vice Chancellor in September of 2020, you've had a notable presence online, which is not typical of people in your position. You've been active on Twitter, blogs, and of course, podcasts like this one. And there's also an informal and even familiar tone to your posts. What has led you to this choice in leadership style and voice?
1: Yeah, it's a a really good question, Cheryl. I think two things. Um, One is that I've always wanted to do this um, and it's easier to just decide how you want to communicate um, when you're the boss, Um, because if you're sort of one or two levels below and the leadership above you is not really into this kind of communication, I think it's a bit harder because it gives you a different visibility to other people. So it felt a little easier um, for me in this new role to just decide that's what I wanted to do. And I think the second element um, is that I was very keenly aware that I needed to um, make myself known and and uh, make myself visible and communicate to everybody in the Leeds community and differently than I normally would have done. Because I stepped in in the middle of the COVID crisis and uh, we weren't really on campus a lot. And normally I would have physically visited departments and walked around and spoken to people and just doing things formally and informally in meeting rooms and halls, etc. And that was now completely impossible. So it was also a conscious choice to make sure that people would be able to get to know me. And I think with so much in the COVID crisis, we were finding out things that we actually like, that we're doing because of the crisis, but we notice work better than what we did before COVID. And I think this for me is one of those things. So I'm not going to stop once the COVID crisis is over and we can meet each other physically again. I think I'm going to be more sort of hybrid (laughs) or blended, if you wish, in my approach. But I'm really enjoying my my Twitter comms with people and getting messages back. And I think there's a very um, low-key way of, of getting to know lots of different people in the community. And similarly... With podcasts, I get, I get a lot of very positive comments from many people who seem to feel like they, they're getting to know me. Um, and that's exactly what I want.
0: So like I said, I've been reading your blogs and many of your blog posts revolve around this idea of perfectionism and overwork and the importance of slowing down, which is, of course, now I think more relevant than ever. So there's one line from one of your blogs called Stepping Off the Hamster Wheel, How a Limited Perspective Can Obscure the Essential that I'm just going to read out. So I believe there are problems with the way we are defining success and rewarding certain behaviors. And by we, I mean vice chancellors and presidents and other people in leadership positions and universities everywhere in the world. What specific practices need to change or can be changed in order to see a a new definition of success and, and kind of to break down those paradigms that keep us on the hamster wheel
1: yeah cheryl i think we need to break down lots of practices and as we're doing that build new ones and maybe we should first build new ones before we break down existing practices because people always get a little nervous and fearful when you start breaking down things that they're used to and that they feel are important for them personally or professionally Uh, so when you just say we're no longer going to do this I think it's hard to make people change. Um, so I think what we need to think about is is what other um, behaviors do we want? Yeah. What 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 is academic excellence? What does it look like? What how do we define it? And I think if we start redefining it to be more broad and less rigid, um, I think we'll find solutions and then we can grow them organically. I think nothing can ever change overnight when it's so incredibly ingrained and so part of what people have grown up with and are used to. And, and for the successful people in academia, they feel like they are successful because of um, those practices, and they often don't themselves realize how narrowly defined they are. It was like the saying, fish can't see water, and I think we all suffer a little bit from that, that we're so in this system that we don't realize actually what we're doing to each other and ourselves. So, so I think what leaders need to do is they need to have that broader perspective. Maybe they should be outside the, the fish tank for a bit every now and then and sort of look at what we're doing inside and then slowly start introducing uh, different ways of, of looking at what we value, what we reward and what we incentivize, but of course also then what we disincentivize. And I think that can only be successful when it's it's part of a bigger vision, of a sense of what universities are for. And I think if we start trying to change universities, we need to explain to the people within them why we're trying to change. So if you just say, okay, from now on, um, we're going to use different criteria for promotion without explaining why, and without explaining that ultimately we all benefit from different criteria for promotion. I don't think you're going to be very successful. So, I think actually one of the reasons that so many presidents and vice chancellors um, yeah don't embark on this path to change is that they themselves um, often aren't aware enough of of yeah what we're doing to each other and the level of of suffering. I'm using that word often when we talk about academic work and studies, and I'm not using it lightly. I really think there is suffering inside of academia. And what, what I find even even worse about the fact that it's there is that it's self-inflicted and to quite a degree, I think, completely unnecessary. And it doesn't it doesn't improve our performance or our outcome on on the contrary, I think it actually is in the way of, of true academic excellence.
0: I definitely think that's true, and I think that when you speak to people who aren't in academia as an academic it helps you kind of put things into further perspective. And as an early career researcher, there's many days that I think, oh, I haven't done any work today because all I've done is uh, prepare my classes. I wrote a blog post. I had an interview with the vice chancellor, but I didn't write a paper and thus I didn't work today.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So speaking about that, I guess, is there's you know a challenge facing academia right now, certainly with the pandemic, is that breakdown of barriers that demarcate home life and work life, and coming out of the pandemic, what do you think needs to be done to, to build those boundaries back up to get that work-life balance going?
1: Yeah, I don't know whether everything is bad. I think we need to talk to one another and we need to be careful not to go you know, 180 degrees back and say, okay, now we're going to make everything the way it was before COVID. But of course, also be careful not to keep everything the way it is now, because I think we all hate certain elements of our life right now. But I think secretly or not so secretly, there are also elements that we like. And of course, they're not the same for everybody. It depends on your stage in your career, whether you have children or want to have children or not. It's very different for me than it is for someone your age. But but I think having that conversation with each other and finding out what it is that we enjoyed in the new way sort of COVID working and what it is we didn't enjoy and how we can build um, stronger communities by being more flexible. Because I think before COVID, a lot of employers felt like employees shouldn't be working from home because clearly they weren't productive. And I think the employer's minds have changed and we realise that some employees actually are more productive. And of course, there are people who can't work from home who have to be at work just to do their work and then it's a whole different situation. So we need to make sure that we don't create all kinds of inequalities. And I just read an interesting article, I think it was in the Financial Times about teams and how important it is not to bring part of the team on campus when or in the office while the other part is working from home because there's good evidence that people who who are in the office with the boss and able to stick their head around the door then have an advantage over the workers from home. So it's better to have an entire team either work from home and converse on Zoom or Teams and then bring them into the office other days. And of course, what does office space look like? That's going to be interesting too. Apart from, do we need to socially distance if we leave that out of the equation for a bit? I think if we're not in the office every day between 8 and 6, uh, we can probably use our office spaces quite differently. So I think we'll have, if we're smart, if and if we don't just completely switch back, we'll find that, that yeah we need to think hard and, and find a really good hybrid. I'm sure that also people with young children enjoy the fact that they don't have to commute every day into the office and leave at really early hours and sometimes just are able to drop the children off at school or daycare and then walk five minutes to their home for a day of work. But it also means we need to equip people's homeworking situations, make sure that it's actually healthy to do it. So yeah, there are loads of things to juggle. But I, th- I think it's kind of a nice challenge to think about to keep the good and and ditch the bad as quickly as possible.
0: I definitely agree, and there's certainly that. I think it'll take a few months for us to find that right balance between what works and what doesn't, and we're going to see those consequences, like that study you said, because we know that even from people that take flexible working arrangements and stay at home, they miss out on those informal networks and.
1: Yeah. So I don't think it's going to go back completely to pre-COVID, it's done can't imagine that we'll want to give up the things that we like better.
0: So to go back a, a bit on what we were talking about with th- this overwork idea, academics and professionals were certainly working, you know, in overdrive. We are trying to not only do too many things, but we're trying to do too many things incredibly well. Yeah. And it's unsustainable. You know, in my own words, I would say that something's got to give. But we're all working within this system that regards this commitment, and this, you know, elusive idea of perfectionism that you touch on in your blog posts. And you personally have become successful in this system. What were some of the defining moments in your experience and, and what do you hope to change for the people coming up after you?
1: Yeah, I don't know whether there was a defining moment. I think it was a whole set of things. Um, Certainly the fact that that I was a single mother for a while and was juggling actually writing my PhD with taking care of two small children by myself was was extremely painful and difficult and lots of nights that were far too short. And I felt I had no choice, I needed to do it. And I, yeah, it's probably a good thing I did it because I don't know whether I would have had this job if I hadn't completed my PhD. But just thinking about what that meant for me physically and mentally and it was it was really too much and and i think what i would what started dawning on me but over a period of many many years is that what we're what we're telling ourselves and each other we need to do isn't written in stone if you start i think it what changed my mind was when i started going up the career ladder and was able to look at it from a bit more distance and not be so in it that it really felt like there was only one way to do it. And and I needed to produce, I needed to write, I needed to do all those things that that clearly were asked from a a young researcher. Um, And I think I started to realize how many of these outcomes are so poorly defined and how some of these outcomes aren't, aren't probably even what we think we're really all about. And yeah, so that, that that's happened to me over the last maybe 10, 15 years. So when I was your age, I was in it. And I had you know, very little awareness of how unhealthy it all was. And maybe when you're younger, you don't realize what a toll it takes. Um, and it's only when you start getting older, you think, why? why are we all doing this? But it's harder to change it when you're not in some kind of leadership position. So I think it gradually came and also with my own personal development, just starting to wonder how I could reduce my own stresses and what the things were that drove me to to be so perfectionistic. And that had a lot of that had nothing to do with work. I was just part of my upbringing. And you know, the Netherlands is quite a Calvinistic country. And there's this huge work ethic that my parents certainly uh, put into me and my sister. So I think when I started seeing the personal as more professional, and started climbing the career ladder. Um, Yeah, I allowed myself to ask questions without just doing it. And I, yeah, I think if I look at it now from from a, a, of course, clearly more advanced leadership position, I think a lot of what we're telling ourselves and each other we need to do isn't that clearly defined. It's just this sense that we need to do it. And I think one of the most difficult elements in academia at the moment, and in many, many other workplaces, um, is the sense of competition, is the ranking, is the fact that we're always competing against others. So if we all drive ourselves completely crazy, uh, if we all produce, produce, produce more and more and more, and there's actually lots of evidence in terms of research publications we are producing more and more and more and more, and it still isn't stopping. Um, yeah, we're never going to win because everybody else is also doing more and more and more. And so that sense that it's never enough and that we really need to stop and pause and wonder what academia is about. Why are universities on this planet? What is their most important role? What are their values? What, what can they do for the world? And is that best reflected in an academic output in terms of publications? And even if the answer is yes, then still, and I don't think it is actually, and you, know, you probably agree with me, but even if it's yes, then still, what what is a good publication? And why are certain publications not as important for the rankings than others are? And why are certain people writing publications not getting the same credits as others? And then when you start looking at all of that, you realize that, A, it's probably not the best outcome that universities should be using for their societal impact and their importance. And secondly, uh, there's huge bias in the way we value um, academic outputs and publications. And there are certain voices, certain people, who just don't get their voices heard, who don't get the credit, who um, who are not visible. And that's both within universities, between universities, but also globally. If you look at the output of the Global North compared to the Global South, there is such disparity. And it's that's not because Global South academics, by definition, are less excellent and less good and less driven than Global North. Absolutely not. It has to do with opportunity. It has to do with Visibility and it also has to do with bias in the way we judge their outputs and we rank them and we we look at what they're what they're doing. So I think we're we're doing the planet a disservice by the way we're now framing our our production. Um, and to make it worse, we're doing ourselves and our communities a disservice. So we can't even say we're working so hard for the common good. I think we're working so hard just because just because we feel we have to.
0: You've touched on a lot there that is uh, very central to kind of my perspective of academia and, and what I first loved about academia and the big one is competition. And I think I've noticed that there's kind of a skepticism or a cynicism about leaders and people who are successful, that there's either people that want to support you or people that think, well, I suffered, so you should suffer too. And that... Finding that balance, I think, and and personally, I've always you know tried to to mentor and help. But in the back of my mind, there's always that idea that these are the people I'm going to competing be competing against for for jobs, for grants. And there is that little part of you that thinks, right, well, if I help them, is there is there going to be enough of the pie to go around for me?
1: Yeah, no, and that's where and then we haven't touched on that yet. It's very important that when we try to change, We don't just tell individuals they need to change. I don't just tell individuals they need to change, but I make sure that it's a systemic approach as well. So what I want for the University of Leeds, and I think every university should want, is to find um, good incentive systems and to make sure that people like you, who are inherently inclined to help others and to mentor, actually see that rewarded. So you don't even have to ever have that tiny, nagging you know, voice in the back of your head that maybe <laughs> you're, t- you're um, enabling your own competition. <laughs> but you know that your university actually wants you to be doing that. And there are lots of ways we can make sure that that happens. If we think about rewarding group work instead of the individual PI who, who is so important and more important than everybody else. But if we look at, at research... as as a group activity and if we think about it much more long term and not you know going from one grant proposal and, and funding round to the next and there's also sort of a breathlessness that we were introducing into academia which is not conducive to good research and that is something that is coming when you listen to Um, UKRI, uh, Otterline Leiser, I'm not even sure what her official title is, but the boss of UKRI. She's very, very uh, clear about her wish to to change from sort of PI-led to a research ecosystem with younger people also having opportunities. You're all part of this bigger pie and you can relax a little bit. So for me, (laughs) everything we can do to make people relax a little bit and and don't feel like they have to fear for their lives every day they get up. And and it's so unhealthy. And again, it's not the way to actually do the kind of work that universities are good at. I mean, we're incredibly powerful potentially as networked research and education institutes in tackling global challenges and really driving global change. And we're so busy with ourselves and, and, and our place in the rankings, and it's actually quite sad. And of course, that then permeates into the university community as well.
0: I'm very fortunate that I had a very strong mentor uh, during my PhD, Professor Jennifer Tomlinson at Sarik, who always told me to take time to just think about things. You know, yeah. she said, just go for a walk and think. There's yeah. no, you, you will never have as much time as you do right now. You're right that that breathlessness makes you think you don't have time. You just, yeah. you just have to produce and produce and produce and Yeah,
1: but that that means we need to stop chasing the rankings and chasing our own age index and all these other things that I think are, yeah, it's not very helpful.
0: Get off the hamster wheel. Get off the hamster wheel. I have one final question that relates to academia in the future. The ecology of academic life has changed in the last year. We're not able to, to go next door to the office and say, hey, what do you think about this idea? But there have been worthwhile changes, you know, the recognition that working from home is possible, like you said, online learning is is considered more valuable than I think it used to be. What are you most excited about as we try to settle back back into this world and and you are a leader of a university post-COVID? What excites you?
1: Um, I'm very excited about the possibilities of digital transformation. So I think there's a wide open field to, to move into. And I'm truly excited about the potential for digital. And there's so much now in terms of the innovation and the technology. We think about AI and immersive technology and simulation studies. And we can really do so much more in an online space than we could just five years ago. So if we we use that and if we harness the technology, but if we keep thinking about the humans at the center, I think we can do amazing stuff. So the scale is amazing, and and actually the quality can be really good as well if we do capture what's different and good, and we make sure we we bottle that up and we focus on that and we grow it and we train it and I think we can become very good at at keeping the human connection, furthering it um, with the use of online technology. I mean, I personally have been to two conferences that would have been held in Pretoria before COVID. There's no way I would have been able to go because it was in the first months of my my tenure and I would have never gone to South Africa for that long after I just started. And now I was there it was part of the discussion, super exciting. Um, I met the, the vice chancellor at the University of Pretoria. I feel like I really know him now, even though I've never met him in person. And and I think and that's just a, a conference on Zoom. It wasn't even high tech or anything. But that's what I'm really excited about, how we can bring um, everything universities have to offer to the world, including the global south, and can really start building bridges and creating a really exciting online community where lots of status uh, differences can disappear, where we can really co-create and not just sort of neo colonial bring our knowledge to the world.
0: And like we've discussed, if we can keep the good and move on from the bad and have a critical perspective on what we change and what we don't change, we will be in a good position moving forward. Yeah, I think that's that's
1: actually a really good sort of metaphor for how we should lead our lives.
0: Thanks so much for joining me on this podcast. And thanks to the listeners as well. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Simone.
1: Yeah, thanks, Cheryl. It's been a real pleasure. And um, yeah, let's have a coffee when you're back on campus. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.